0: All right, good afternoon, everybody. It's great to see such a robust crowd. Um, I want to welcome you all to the Atlantic Council. I'm Tom Cunningham, the Deputy Director of the Global Energy Center. I'm very pleased to welcome you all here today for a conversation about efforts to encourage the disclosure of climate-related financial risk information almost said to discourage, that's not the point here. The emerging topic is gaining significance and attention, particularly as the Paris Climate Agreement will shortly enter into force. The governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, characterized climate change as the tragedy of the horizon because its impacts will be felt beyond the horizon that most actors consider, beyond um, traditional business cycles, political cycles, and the purview or remit of other institutions like central banks. Our conversation today is about determining the best ways to define and disclose what Kearney identified as those risks um, of climate change to potential investors, lenders, and other stakeholders. The goal of such disclosure is not just to help build the costs of climate change and associated policies into the economy, but also to harness markets to deal with this climate challenge the corollary benefit i think is to increase transparency across industries which are all going to need with this or, or which are all going to need to deal with this challenge and should do so in ways that are uniform and compatible today we'll uh, discuss two ongoing complementary efforts to promote the disclosure of climate related financial risk information one led by the g20 task force on climate related financial disclosures and the other led by the us government the task force seeks to develop recommendations for voluntary climate-related financial disclosures in order to measure and respond to these risks and encourage firms to align their their disclosures with investors' needs. The U.S. government's approach utilizes procurement regulations to encourage climate disclosure. Of course, not everyone may agree with the need for this type of disclosure, but I would say that this adds, this fact adds to the value of today's discussion to, to, to flesh out this issue further because I don't think that issue will be going away anytime soon, or the need. So we have a great panel to discuss this and both approaches with the common goal of greater transparency and stability in financial markets. We're very excited to have with us today Mary Shapiro, who is chair of the US Securities and Exchange Commission from 2009 to 2012, and is currently serving as secretariat of the G20 task force on climate-related financial disclosures. And um, Mary was the first woman to serve as SEC chairman Um, And apparently, you testified before Congress 45 times in that position, and the only person to have served as both chairman of the SEC and of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Upon her departure, Obama praised her leadership, saying the SEC became stronger and the financial system safer and better able to serve the American people. We are very fortunate to have her here today at the Atlantic Council. Also with us is Ali Zaidi. Associate Director for Natural Resources, Energy, and Science at the White House Office of Management and Budget. In this role, Zaidi leads a team of policy and budget experts overseeing a wide variety of policy, budget, and management, believe it or not, issues across nearly a $100 billion portfolio and a number of federal agencies. He brings to the position a strong background in the design and implementation of federal policies and the development of public and private sector partnerships to increase U.S. energy security and cut harmful carbon pollution. Since February 2009, Zaidi has served in a number of roles within the Obama administration and we're lucky he's chosen to share his experience and expertise with us today. And finally, last but not least, moderating our discussion is David Goldwyn, Chairman of the Global Energy Center's Advisory Group and also a non-resident fellow with the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arsht Latin America Center. He is also president of Goldwyn Global Strategies, an international energy advisory consultancy. Former U.S. government positions include special envoy and coordinator for international energy affairs at the Department of State and and assistant secretary for international affairs at the Department of Energy. I want to note that David has played a tremendous role in the launch and strategic direction of our global energy center. He's also co-chair of a new project here, the Global Energy Governance Task Force, which is working now to assess and propose new strategies for existing global multilateral energy governance structures. I wanna thank you, David, for associating your expertise in Atlantic, with the Atlantic Council and for making today's event possible. So once again, thank you to our guests and to all of you for being here. I look forward to a good conversation. I wanna remind everyone that today's discussion is on the record and is streaming live. Please join in the conversation on Twitter, which is blowing up right now, at AC Global Energy. And don't forget to use the hashtag AC Energy. All right, everybody, please come forward. Thanks.
1: Great. Thank you, Tom, for those terrific introductions, and welcome, everybody. This is a really important topic, which seems to have had more prominence in Europe, where Mark Carney uh, resides as head of the Bank of England, than it's had here. But uh, it's a very important topic, and that's why we thought we would we would talk about it. We would talk about it today. And um, it, it started with uh, Mark Carney's speech, which is outside on the tragedy of the horizons. It, it turned into uh, a Financial Stability Board G20 task force, uh, chaired by Mike Bloomberg, um, and where Mary Shapiro is the senior advisor. Uh, they've gone through a, a process of uh, explaining, um, you know, uh, why this matters, uh, and taking comments from industry. And by December, they will put out uh, suggested language uh, for a cross-section of industries, uh, and then take additional comments. But the U.S. government has also been concerned about this, and I think the place to start this morning, you know, is first to start with uh, with uh, our most experienced financial securities regulator, but to explain you know, why did this get started? What are the risks? And if, we, if investors don't know enough about, uh, about climate risk disclosure, what sort of information uh, will, are we likely to see requested and what kind of language um, is is going to be helpful.
2: Sure, so thank you for the opportunity to be here. Um, It's really uh, wonderful for me to be able to talk about the task force and in a room full of people who know so much about these issues. So um, as, as was mentioned, Mark Carney gave a speech about a year ago called The Tragedy of the Horizon. And the tragedy is really that by the time climate change is something we're all factoring into our everyday decision making, it may be too late. And that therefore it was important for Um, The financial system, it was actually a matter of financial stability for us to have better disclosure around climate-related financial impacts. So the G20 um, asked Mark to um, create a task force that would look at these issues uh, in more detail and come back with a set of recommendations. And the task force was created um, early this year, Um, 31 representatives from around the world, all industry uh, participants, And the remit um, from the Financial Stability Board was to build on the great work that's already been done by regulators, by NGOs, by industry in trying to develop disclosure frameworks and make sense of all of those different frameworks and come forward with a comprehensive set of recommendations that would enable the disclosure of financial impacts from climate-related events. And what's different about what we've done than many of those other frameworks is, first of all, we focused very much on transition risk. Physical risk, we all understand. It's rising sea levels, it's, it's uh, a warming uh, planet, it's access to resources like water being uh, compromised. But there's also the transition risk, which is, uh, has the potential to have very profound financial uh, impacts on companies. And so we focused on financial impacts and building on the work of others have created a framework that will um, enable companies to do a better job of disclosing material financial impacts from climate-related events. We really broadly viewed our remit as as really solving three problems with one solution. The first problem is companies, actually, in most of the G20, maybe all of the G20 jurisdictions, certainly in the United States, already have an obligation to disclose material risk. Um, Climate's not accepted from that in any way. And in fact, in 2010, the SEC directed companies to think specifically about climate impacts and whether they were material, and if so, to disclose them. So companies have this uh, necessity to make disclosure, but they haven't really had a good framework um, through which to make that kind of disclosure. Investors are demanding this information. Um, every survey shows that a high, num- a high percentage of institutional investors want better disclosure around climate-related risk, So, they, but they don't get that disclosure. They get boilerplate. They get non-comparable numbers, so you can't compare companies across an industry or within a sector. And the third problem is regulators want this information because they need to be able to see if risks are building in the financial system. And so our view was we should be able to create a framework for disclosure that satisfies all the the, the problems of these three main constituencies, and which, in addition, enables underwriters and lenders uh, and investors, um, the the main um, foundations of the financial system, to make better informed decisions about lending, about investing, and about
1: underwriting. That's good. Let's unpack a couple of the concepts. So, first, transition risk. What do you? What, what's really meant by transition risk? Is this the sudden invention of battery storage and technology, or is this sudden transition in you Could, know in the weather or something it, else? No,
2: it's 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 more the former than the latter. I would say the sudden transition of weather is is more of a physical risk, but if you think about. Um, tech um, big technology advances, or you think about the fact that nearly 200 uh, countries signed on to COP 21 and a commitment to to reduce or to uh, limit global warming. You could have policy or regulatory or legislative decrees in in countries um, that would um, cause an abrupt repricing potentially of fossil fuel assets as an example of, of a transition risk. So that kind of um, sudden transition in the economy as a result of legislative fiat or or technological change um, could send real shutters through the financial system depending on the exposure of investors or lenders or underwriters to those assets who, that have been ab- abruptly repriced as a result of, of uh, a policy change. So. Um, we focus very much on that because given the fact that the world has largely signed on to trying to limit greenhouse gas emissions, um, those transition risks are very real. Okay.
1: And you were chair when the first climate-related uh, uh, disclosure requirements came out, so can you paint a little bit of a picture of what kind of disclosures are, are going to be helpful? Is okay. it scenario planning for different price levels or uh, either in, in energy or in housing or in any others? What What might this look like?
2: So it it can look like um, different things in different companies. Um, So some companies are much more exposed to climate risk than others are. If you look at the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board's work, um, climate change and climate change related risks are ubiquitous. They affect um, more than 90% of the the value of the capital markets, something like 73 out of 79 industries are exposed to climate risk. But it manifests quite differently in different industries. And you can imagine that. In agriculture, it will manifest differently than it will in the utility business than it will in the pharmaceutical business. So one of the, um, I think, important things about the framework that we've developed is that it has flexibility. Um, So there is a set of recommendations that really any company anywhere in the world ought to be able to adopt. And it goes to the governance of risk Within the company, and it talks. We talk about how does the board oversee climate-related risk? How does the company think about it? How do you measure it? How do you manage it? How do you incorporate it into your existing risk management functions? Um, how do you hold people accountable for consideration of climate-related risk? Do you do you use scenario analysis? If it's a a company that's you know relatively new to these issues, that might be a qualitative discussion about scenario planning. But if you're a very sophisticated, large public company, you might well be deeply engaged already in scenario analysis and and in quite a quantitative way. And so there's a, a certain amount of flexibility in how we've tried to approach this, because these are voluntary standards. And at the end of the day, our goal is absolutely to get the maximum adoption and implementation that we can. But at the same time, we need to get all companies and asset owners, asset managers, banks and other financial institutions on a path of providing this disclosure because investors need it to make informed capital allocation decisions.
1: Okay, terrific. Well, We'll come to to some of the questions in in a second, but but Ali, you're you're now at the Office of Management and Budget. You've been at DPC and and, and secretary Chu and others, but why does the Office of Management and Budget care about climate risk? What's the what's the risk to the US government and what's What's the management issue and what's the budget issue that's involved in all this?
3: That's a great question. Um, The way we approach it and what I think inspires us to to be leaders in this space is we've got got sort of three responsibilities that fall precisely in this uh, sphere. First, um, on the sort of procurement and supply chain side, OMB really has a responsibility to get out and articulate best practices approaches to managing the supply chain uh, to advance the missions of the various agencies and really protect the taxpayer uh, as part of that. And so one of our core responsibilities and one of the things that brings us to this work is um, ensuring that there is consistent and clear policy from a procurement perspective uh, across the federal government. Um, The second thing that, that brings us to this work is You know, we've been part of the core team uh, over the last several years that's advanced um, this corpus of work of integrating the best economics and science into the decision-making of the federal government. That's manifested itself in things like the social cost of carbon, which has shown up in a bunch of the rulemaking that we've done. Uh, It's guided our work in bringing um, an appreciation for the need to curb carbon pollution uh, from a host of sources like uh, from air uh, airplanes to uh, the power sector to, to mobile sources on the ground. Um, and so that sort of well of economic and technical scientific knowledge uh, really comes to bear in a context like this and that, that's another reason why we're engaged. And then finally, you know, Whether you're looking back or you're looking forward, um, climate risk is manifesting itself from a real budget, uh, in real budget terms. So if you look back over the last decade, the direct and indirect costs from extreme weather and things like wildfire suppression um, have cost the federal government over $360 billion. And as we look forward, we know that this is something that's going to show up uh, in things like health costs uh, with air-related diseases increasing, that, that shows up uh, at places like CMMS. And it's gonna show up as things like wildfire costs continue to hike, um, and it's gonna show up in, in the form of disaster relief. And we're really spending a lot of time internally as uh, the OMB, and I know our colleagues on the Hill, places like CBO, GAO, are spending a lot of time really stress testing, uh, has the federal government um, been solicitous enough of the reality that we face today? Um, And are we taking the appropriate steps to really uh, measure uh, that and then mitigate it? So those are the, I think, three entry points for us.
1: Terrific. Now, you've already done some work on this. You all issued some Procurement regulations a few months ago. So, can you talk a little bit about what have you asked companies that are providing goods and services to the U.S. government to do, and have have you seen them respond
3: yet? So, look, uh, you know, just to just to set the order of magnitude here, the federal government purchases four hundred and forty billion dollars of goods and services every year. That's a big number. A big number. Uh, and when you're writing the checks for $440 billion of goods and services on behalf of the taxpayer, that should keep you up at night if you aren't uh, spending time uh, measuring the risk. And so one of the things we've gone out and asked companies to do uh, is tell us how they're thinking about things like their greenhouse gas uh, intensity, but then also help us think about how to best um, manage the supply chain vulnerabilities that they face. So um, an example of that is in 2014, um, we actually ran a procurement that was, that integrated the social cost of carbon into a mobility services contract. So, you know, the FedEx UPS uh, line of business. And we really tested it to see if uh, folks were integrating this thinking into, into the way they did business. Um, going forward, I think, We're really thinking more and more about how um, climate factors into things like the location for real property decisions, um, all the way to um, uh, procurement of uh, goods that could be impacted from a supply chain basis as a result of extreme weather. Terrific. Well, let me um, talk about some of the the questions we've been
1: getting. Um, uh, The first one um, on transition risk. So uh, in the energy world, um, they've had a big, uh, a big, big, I wouldn't call it a transition, but you know, I think you know, values have dropped in half. It's been extremely, the prices have been very, uh, very volatile. Um, and so we've had um, a huge drop in asset values, but without a significant shock to the financial system over overall. So how does that play into planning for, for transition risk? Is there, is there more disclosure that should happen? Or if it hasn't happened
3: now, what could happen that could be worse? Great, I, I, I mean, I'd, I'd love to get Mary's views in on this as well, but you know, from a federal uh, perspective, there are, there are a set of things the federal government just does. Uh, and those are stepping in to advance the public good where the markets aren't gonna do that. Um, on the upside, the example is there's underinvestment in clean energy R&D. Private sector just doesn't put up the sort of money that we would expect as a percentage of the GDP. And so we're stepping in to fill that gap uh, and advance the public good because we know that's net beneficial from an economy-wide perspective. On the flip side of that, um, to Mary's point earlier, we've gotta be concerned as a federal government, we're very concerned about things like inefficient uh, appreciation of risk or in- inefficient allocation of capital. And so um, when people are not spending enough to, for example, shore up their assets relative to the climate risk that they might be exposed to from a physical perspective, um, we could ignore that. But the reality is that's something that from a uh, from a federal disaster relief perspective is, is going to come do to us and so from our perspective getting information out there of those forward-looking risks is really important Um, and if folks are under investing in that from a resource perspective that's something we want to encourage so you know there's this I think broader point of transition risk for in particular the oil gas and coal sector Um, but I think taking a step back and looking at it more generically, uh, there's a question of, you know, taking out insurance policy and doing smart analysis and helping that um, advance efficient allocation of capital. That's what we're uh, trying to advance through our various uh, actions. That's great. You have any comment? So, yeah, I, w-
2: I would just add to that, I think that's exactly right, that um, 80% of institutional investors have said that they need to make um, ESG broadly, but climate in particular. um, ESG, sorry. uh, Environmental, social, and governance um, uh, considerations in their investing decisions. And climate change is is the most, frankly, the most heightened, I think they would say, and important of of all of those. And the inability to have information that's company specific, that's comparable from company to company, does Mm -hmm. not allow them to make the most informed, investment decisions that they that they can make. And if you're an asset owner, if you're a pension fund, and you have long-term liabilities, what, what companies think about their prospects over the longer term, not just the quarter, not just the year, maybe not just the next three years, but the next five or 10 years, is really important to your uh, capital allocation decisions. So um, the demand for this information uh, is not diminishing. Um, whether it's a financial stability issue or not, and I think I think many central bankers think that it is, many finance ministers think that it is. Um, nonetheless, investors are demanding this information so that they can um, do the best job possible for the beneficiaries uh, on whose behalf they're working. And without the disclo- disclosure as a mitigant and, a, and a, an illumination to their decision-making, a mitigant to the risk and, a, and an illuminant illuminator of the decision making, their, their best guess is, is all we get as their ultimate beneficiaries and, and so the, the disclosure really needs to be there and it needs to be comprehensive and it needs to come out in the public documents and the public way, not the way generally institutional investors get it now, which is by sending a survey to the company and you know, answer these 400 questions, um, public company, about how you think about climate and how it's uh, incorporated into your business strategy and business planning, well, that's great for that institutional investor, but the rest of us don't get to share in that information. There's a profound unfairness to that as well so I think um, uh, this is not this is not a niche issue anymore. this is mainstream investors um, lenders underwriters need this information
3: and and let me, me please, let me jump yeah. in on that actually because you know, there are 140 million Americans who are uh, beneficiaries of pension plans um, that are governed by rules put forward by the Department of Labor. And so that's another thing that I think we've taken a keen interest in, is making sure that group of folks uh, and the managers there are getting the information they need, again, to Mary's point, um, so that, you know, even if it's a one or if it's a beyond two-year time horizon issue, uh, and maybe it's not a risk to the markets generally. uh, These are people who've worked their entire lives, put money up uh, into a pension fund. They're counting on that coming back, whether or not the markets as a whole are doing great or not. And so one of the things we've done uh, is really ask for uh, folks to be thinking about disclosure in that context as well. Um, and something that 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 the labor department's been advancing in that context, and that's that's something we're doing at the federal level. But we know that's a big consideration for state pension managers. Just last week, the managers of the 45 billion dollar uh, pension fund in Maryland came out and said, you know, this is something they're concerned about. They're going to start testing their portfolio for climate risk and, and greenhouse gas uh, issues. So. This is something that's, I think, picking up uh, steam because you know, if you're responsible for uh, ensuring that these people's hard-earned money isn't, uh, getting, isn't part of a, a lottery game, then you're going to be asking for, for more information.
1: Um, this is how Mark Carney got the, uh, the attention in his speech. He was speaking to the UK insurance industry and said, essentially, so you've, got, you've got our pension funds uh, you know, in your hands. Are you doing your job? Mm-hmm. You know, are you actually uh, addressing risk? Let me ask you about uncertainty because the, uh, for, for companies that are looking ahead, whether you're uh, you know a wind company or an oil company or a power generation company, um, you're looking out wondering what the price of your commodity is going to be or what the demand is going to be in five years, 10 years, 15 years. And so there's a lot of uncertainty about Paris implementation. There's uncertainty even in the US regulatory system. And there's always uncertainty about long-term prices. So if, you know, if these disclosure, if the voluntary language which is proposed is implemented, what does, the, what does the company do about that level, that extreme level of uncertainty about what the future holds?
2: So that's, that's been a feature of the securities markets and, and corporate disclosure forever um, that, that you have in the context of forward-looking information. You make some assumptions uh, and you talk about what could happen. The way we've tried to deal with that in a concrete way in the task force is through the use of scenario analysis and, and we looked um, across a lot of different scenarios, an NDC scenario. Um, a two-degree scenario, a, a number of others, and we will encourage the use of a two-degree scenario as a baseline and then encourage companies to utilize other scenarios um, that, that might make sense for their scenario planning, their their um, business planning, but also for disclosure purposes so that, again, we'll have information that we can compare from one company to another. But, but the nature of scenario analysis is to understand What's the pot, what's possible, What's even unlikely but possible, in order to understand the magnitude of impact um, from those scenarios eventuating. But you know, the federal securities laws in the U.S. already require disclosure of material information of known trends and uncertainties. Climate change is a big uncertainty. Um, nonetheless, we know it has the potential to have enormous transitional or physical impact. On most businesses, and um, and therefore ought to be discussed and disclosed, it can be done qualitatively. It doesn't have to be done with numbers, but it needs to be disclosed.
1: That's great. Now, the, the U.S. government has a social cost of carbon. Some companies today are using um, uh, are using a shadow price of carbon for deciding things like pro- project allocation. So they might pick a number, you know, at least now they do these in not by committing in their securities documents, but they do it. You know, they ESG describe them on their, their on the ESG websites. reports and they say, well, you know, we're going to use a, a $60 or $70 price of carbon and we don't allocate a project unless it can survive that as I guess is a, a shadow projection of carbon implementation. Is that a helpful practice? Is that the kind of practice you think all industries should be required or that companies should, in a sense, if they're going to say that, they should be obliged to... Fulfill.
2: So we we, won't direct, we don't direct in our recommendations that people use a carbon price, but we ask for disclosure around that if they do, um, and how they concluded um, to use that.
3: Terrific. Look, I think um, the latest tally is 5,800 companies, 60% of global market cap are doing some version of this. Um, and. It's it's not our job to tell those folks how to run their businesses or what good businesses. I think they can figure it out, um, but I think there's a there's a little bit of a um, maybe a lagging appreciation for how much has happened uh, to transform the climate landscape over the last couple of years, and uh, it's while uncertainty remains. Um, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to say that sitting in a boardroom, this is not a material consideration. Uh, and I would imagine that sitting in most of these boardrooms, there's a sense that the trend line is pretty clear. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think folks who are planning in this way are gonna come out ahead, um, because they're gonna be um, on the right side of the way this uh, issue breaks as, uh, Paris sets up a ratcheting up uh, mechanism um, as things like just to, just in the last month the aviation industry starts to move into a market based approach to dealing with its emissions. That was a big breakthrough, um, things like uh, the phase out of hydrofluorocarbons, a huge amendment that we secured in Kigali um, that 's impacting a big uh, sector segment of industry. Um, these are things that are happening, and even if you set aside all of the regulatory stuff and even if you set aside all of the uh, international work that's taken place, which, by the way, I don't think most people would have bet all of these things would have come together this year the way they have, um, i would always harkened back to uh, the, time, the last time we had a battle on whether the production tax credit and the investment tax credit for solar and wind should be extended. And we've gotten to a point on clean energy where the costs are coming down so quickly, the uptake is happening so rapidly, and the jobs are so uh, clear and palpable for communities all around the United States that it's hard for, I think, the political economy to swing the other direction. It's not, People aren't just betting on the upside. The upside's here, and it's now risk aversion. Uh, so we've kicked into a different gear, and I think people who are uh, baking that into their corporate decision making are going to come out ahead.
1: Great. Let me ask you both, um, maybe starting with you, Mary, about about outcomes, um, because in a sense you're, you're you want a, you want disclosure and you want companies to to describe you know give shareholders an, an informed decision, but you, but you're also hoping for outcomes. So maybe talk about a couple of industries, maybe housing, maybe energy, maybe um, other areas where resilience is important. If this is implemented, you know, sort of three years, five years from now, what kind of behavioral change are you hoping will will come out of this?
2: Well, Ali should speak to this too. I think um, from my perspective, the disclosure is all about understanding what the impact is on companies of climate change we're actually not about the reverse, which is the way most people have thought about these issues for many years. We're not about the impact companies are having on the environment. Um, And that's an important distinction, particularly since our remit comes from central bankers and, uh, and finance ministers, to think about this in terms of what's the impact on companies. And so what you would expect to see with disclosure that allows Investors, or underwriters, or lenders, to look across um, companies within a sector. Is that al- capital will be allocated to the companies that are most effectively dealing with these issues, that have disclosed most clearly what the impacts are, have um, disclosed and undertaken mitigating actions um, to diminish the impact of climate uh, change on on their operations. And what that translates down into on the granular level, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. What, but but it will give investors the tools they need to make informed decisions about where to be investing and for how long. Uh, And and that will be an enormous discipline in the marketplace.
3: Look, we we obviously support the disclosure approach, and uh, the president was among the leaders who joined the G20 in saying we're excited about the work that Mary and her team come out with at the end of the year. Um, But in many ways, that's the baseline. Part of it's going to be companies stepping up and going beyond the baseline. Part of it's going to be government saying, "Hey, you know, after looking at the data, after looking across the portfolio, there's some things that are just common sense. We got, uh, uh, got, got to be hard uh, nosed. We got to we got to be regulatory about it." Um, and a, a couple places where that's going to show up uh, and where we're already moving out. One is in the flood risk space. So. Flood risk is, there's uncertainty associated with it, but it's not idiosyncratic. We know we have modeling, we know how to mitigate it, we know uh, how high we need to build in certain places. And so you're seeing uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development put out standards for how high you need to build in certain places. Um, FEMA is going out, has gone out with standards on flood risk saying uh, when we rebuild, we're gonna rebuild in a certain way. even through uh, this uh, set of funds that's often deployed in the wake of an emergency, the um, the Community Development Block Grant, um, we've pushed a thing called the Fortified Building Code Standard as something communities need to be considering to deal with wind risk. So um, you're gonna see, I think, the federal government really start to set baseline standards on top of this disclosure regime. Um, and you know, to, to Mary's point about the directionality of disclosure, um, one of the things I think we're able to do is because we're both an observer and an actor in this space, as an actor, uh, we're gonna hold ourselves to that higher standard and say, through our um, NEPA analysis, which goes through every, which applies to significant federal actions, uh, the National Environmental Policy Act uh, analysis, we're going to be looking at not just the impact of climate on the investments we're putting in the ground, but our impact on what we're doing to the local uh, uh, adaptability and preparedness for uh, climate risk. I think what that will do is, one, you'll see a quick uptake of baseline standards, whether it's in the building codes arena, um, in where and how you build. I think the second thing you'll see is a greater valuation on preparedness and resilience measures. Um, so there's a new study that the Nature Conservancy just did that showed there are billions of dollars of benefits that wetlands produced um, to prevent damage when Hurricane Sandy came through. Mm-hmm. You're going to see investment in things like that because we'll be able to monetize it because we will have a fuller understanding of the economics here. So. Those are, I think that's how you'll start to see um, this data really serve as the, uh, sort of holding up a mirror to folks and people finally see what's going on, they're gonna take more uh, rational actions.
1: So in the theory, so there'll be, uh, shareholders will value investments in resilience?
2: Sure, I mean, it's a little bit as simple as, and Mike Bloomberg says this all the time, what you measure is what you manage. And if you have transparency into measuring what these impacts are from a financial perspective on the companies that you own as a shareholder, or you lend to as a bank, or you underwrite as an insurance company, those companies will do a better job of managing those risks, and you'll do a better job of holding their feet to the fire in managing those risks.
1: Great. Well, we're going to open, the, uh, open things up to questions from the audience. We have a, a very diverse set of, uh, uh, of actors here. Um, while we're, I will have folks have microphones, so just raise your hand if, uh, if you've got a question. Uh, and I'd just like to take the opportunity to say we've got some uh, suggested reading for you outside. One is Mark Carney's speech on the tragedy of the horizons. The other is the op-ed that Brian Deese and Jeff Science did uh, this summer, I think, in the Wall Street Journal, which gives, uh, I think, a very good exposition of sort of why the U.S. government cares and what sort of actions they're taking. And one of our advisory board members, Dan Yergin, uh and their team put out a study with I shared with our panelists uh, last week on whether transition risk is uh, is systemic risk. So we have that IHS market piece out uh, out as well. Um, so now we can turn it over to questions for the audience. And uh, while we're waiting for uh, for folks to come there, let me um, uh, go ahead Let's start with this lady here. If you could just identify yourself uh, um. and then ask your question.
2: Thanks, sure. Um, my name is Amy Dine and I'm with Terra Alpha Investments and we're an investment fund where we actually use disclosed environmental data as a key piece of how we choose which companies we're investing. in. we take the quote that Mary just said very seriously that we look at companies that actually are measuring this are the ones who are going to manage it and find ways to be the most profitable companies in the future. So my question is what can people in this room do to encourage uh, the SEC to demand that these be part of disclosed um, you know, quarterly filings, 10Ks, et cetera, because a traditional investor needs to see it there to be able to use it, unlike those of us in the room who actually know that it's already important to use.
1: That's great. Good question, the SEC. And when we spoke, you talked a little bit about the SEC has uh, pretty broad powers. There's regulations, but there's also, you know, interpretation things. Um, if you could talk maybe both about what might happen and, and what your what your practices were.
2: Sure. So there's, there's some... Um, maybe even some would say lots of disclosure out there already about climate-related impacts. It has two big failings in, in my view. One is it's largely boilerplate um, and, um, and the second is that it's hard to find. It's not in financial filings um, that are required by the SEC but rather it might be in an ESG report or on a, on a company's website. And That's better than nothing for sure but it's it's not where we need to be. So um, the remit of the task force, again, is voluntary standards. Um, and so we're working very hard to balance cost-effectiveness and doability and for companies, uh, asset owners, asset managers, banks, and others, with uh, ambition to get actually really good disclosure out there that's decision-useful um, for the financial markets. So the SEC has a couple of alternatives here. Um, They, uh, when we put out the climate release in 2010, that encouraged companies to think about these issues and evaluate their materiality and disclose them. We also commented a lot on company filings. The company, public companies filings go into the SEC, and the SEC staff will actually write them a long comment letter that says, explain this number better, don't use this non-GAAP measure, Why haven't you evaluated this more carefully and given better disclosure around it, that kind of thing? So the SEC could step up again as we did in 2010 and do more aggressive commenting on company disclosure around uh, climate-related financial impacts. They could also take the 2010 interpretive release and just renew it and talk about some of the developments since 2010. There have been many. Um, Transition risk is something that's much more front of mind now than it was then. They could talk about some of those um, issues uh, in an interpretation that would give companies guidance um, uh, about the quality of their disclosure. Um, They could continue to do something they have been doing, which is require companies, when they get a shareholder proposal, that asks them to do a report or provide disclosure on a climate-related impact. The SEC has not been letting companies um, fail to include those in the, in the in the proxy. And so shareholders actually get a chance to vote on that. So continuing that um, mainstream view of these proposals as appropriate under shareholder proposal rules um, is a good thing for the SEC to continue to do. They can write rules. Um, they can write disclosure rules. They can write line item rules that say you must disclose X, Y, and Z, um, or they could write rules that um, give more clarity to the materiality of um, these kinds of disclosures. I don't know that they'll do that. They don't have to do that. They don't need to do that. Um, Just by using their bully pulpit and talking about these issues more and more, companies will absolutely pay attention. They will look at the frameworks that exist, whether it's one of the existing ones or the new one that the, the task force will be proposing, and they can jump on board and utilize those um, to fulfill their disclosure obligations. So I never underestimate the value of the bully pulpit in an area like this, where companies are finely attuned to the nuances of what the SEC is saying and um, willing to satisfy those requirements before they actually become specific regulatory obligations.
1: In the course of the task force, did um, did you come into contact with regulators from other jurisdictions? Are you seeing any of them either being ahead of the curve? or? So Sorry, uh,
2: well, I mean, Europe is 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 ahead of us in many ways with um, uh, an EU directive in this area. Um, different countries are are at different places. The SEC, I will say, very much to their credit, put out a concept release uh, six months or so ago um, on the whole disclosure regime mm-hmm. and a set of questions they asked were around the usefulness of sustainability disclosure and climate-related disclosure and. They got um, 267 unique comment letters. They got thousands of form letters. Eighty percent of those encouraged the SEC to require more disclosure around ESG issues, and two-thirds of those focused very much on climate-related impacts. That's a pretty strong mandate for the SEC to receive from the, from the public commenting uh, on its proposal. So they have, a, they have a foundation now to go forward on one of these many paths if they choose to do that. But um, the rest of the world is, is moving ahead. And, but I think there's tremendous interest in what the task force has been doing as the vehicle, as I said earlier, to satisfy the needs that issuers already have, that investors have, and regulators have as well.
1: Terrific. Start here. We'll take, we'll take a couple.
4: Thank you very much, Kevin Massey with Statoil. Um, My question goes uh, back to the the comment around scenario planning and the kind of qualitative element of risk measurement uh, in in an era uh, or a a future landscape uh, with a lot of uncertainty in it. Uh, We already have a two-degree scenario in our energy perspectives outlook, uh, but you can get to the um, two-degree outcome uh, through many ways, through many assumptions, Um, and my question is, Will the the task force recommendations be putting some guidelines or, or, or parameters around the way in which companies make assumptions uh, around the two degree target? I mean, you can, if you're a coal company, you can assume that that the, the the two degree scenario is reached by backing out non coal resources. If you're an oil company, you can do a similar similar thing.
2: Sure. So great question. And I don't want to get too detailed on the task force's recommendations because. Frankly, the Financial Stability Board is entitled to hear them first, but, but, we, but we, uh, obviously we've been testing a lot of our theories. We've had over 100 bilateral meetings with companies and institutional investors and others to talk about w- were our, our recommendations feasible and decision useful. And we, we do talk about the disclosure of assumptions because if you don't understand what underlying assumptions have been made, the scenario analysis isn't really very useful.
1: That's great. Sherry.
2: Thank you. Uh, Sherry Goodman, Atlantic Council Board Director. There's been uh, much discussion about a major infrastructure uh, initiative for the United States. How do you think um, what you're working on, Mary, is going to factor into resetting the nation's infrastructure, not only energy, but um, other ailing infrastructure we face? And um, Ali, how um, how do you think? Well, what's the sort of the next mountain to climb? I know the flood risk and the HFC amendment, obviously Paris. So much has been done. Where you know, um, what what's the the next big area here that that addresses sort of how we mainstream the climate risk and decision making into more of
5: our processes?
2: So I think look. We're, we're at base all about disclosure. And with disclosure, um, the markets will direct, investors and lenders and others will direct where capital is allocated. And so whether it's an infrastructure bill or really any, any other kind of major initiative, um, the disclosure will help people understand the appropriate investment vehicle. We are about both the risks of climate-related um issues and also the opportunities and it's important to companies and frankly it's important to us as representatives effectively of investors in this process that that companies have the opportunity to talk about the opportunities that they see um from from climate change and and many companies see enormous opportunities in renewable energy in um recycling in um uh, in Really, in virtually every industry, there are opportunities that arise as well. And so I think when you're talking about an infrastructure bill and the opportunity for enormous sums of money um, to be spent uh, with companies that have latched onto those opportunities and made them very real, there's probably a direct relationship between our disclosure and, and what can happen there. Ali probably has a much better answer than I
3: do. No, but I <laughs> I do want to riff on the infrastructure theme before getting to the second question. On infrastructure, um, you know, when you look at deep decarbonization scenarios for the United States and for the world, there are, there are a few things where you've got a bunch more sort of replacement cycles between now and the mid-century. Uh, vehicles, you'll probably replace two or three times. Appliances, you'll replace a few times. Um, but the long life infrastructure, you got sort of one shot, maybe a shot and a half. Um, and so being very thoughtful about the greenhouse gas impacts, some of which are non obvious, right? So uh, the placement of transportation infrastructure and what it does to the uh, sort of smart growth trajectory of a, of a metropolitan region is pretty significant. Um, the balance between transit and uh, other modes of transportation is pretty significant. Um, one of the ways we've been thinking about infrastructure, which we actually put out in our 21st century uh, transportation plan at the beginning of the year, is how do we uh, take advantage of things like automation, not just vehicles that drive themselves, but uh, the lower levels of sort of level two, three, um where uh you're going to be using sensors to get uh things to be running more efficiently so there are a bunch of things i think in the in the infrastructure space um that are going to be very significant and we need to be screening a lot of those through uh common sense flood uh work and and frankly the, the 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 implementation of the executive order which FEMA and HUD have started, but DOT, SBA, and others are working on is going to be, I think, a critical critical predicate to making sure whatever infrastructure spending happens going forward, it's done in a smart way from a resilience perspective. Um, but there's this greenhouse gas question, which I think will be significant. I think the NEPA guidance is significant in that regard. Um, but there's a lot more, I think, that needs to be brought to bear from a, a measurement and modeling perspective. I
5: mean, flood risk seems to be one dimension.
3: yeah there and and uh, frankly, if you look at things like uh, where we're going to be growing certain things, where the flows of commerce are going to be uh, from a climate perspective, you know, uh, where are you incentivizing uh, future uh, ag growth, um, that's going to be dependent on where you're dredging and where you're building roads and where you're building trains, and so. Um, there's a lot that you can do unintentionally and I think we're at this moment where uh, just like we were really deliberate around the time Eisenhower built out highways, we've got to be really deliberate and take into account all of the transitions that are happening uh, domestically. I think from uh, what is the what is sort of the next big book of business look like, um, transportation is going to be a big piece of that, um, the fuel economy standards that um, we've we're uh, sort of the midterm of our light duty vehicle standards. That's a really big thing to get done uh, for the next administration. And, and just sort of crosswalking it back to the climate risk discussion, you know, you're sitting in Detroit uh, in 2007, 2008. Um, they went through a pretty big retooling. Um, and now you've got minivans that are hybrid and you got electric vehicles. Um, and Uh, sort of breakthrough year this year on patents for EVs and and, uh, storage uh, technology. So there's been a big shift. So this is not something that, you know, um, we're betting against industry on. I think there's a pretty great proof point that industry is able to take into account where things are going from a uh, climate perspective and really invest in that direction. Um, I think the second big piece is gonna be in the land sector space. And this goes to um, some of the complexity which we, we shouldn't airbrush over. Um, you know, I've, I think, said a couple of times, this, this is not idiosyncratic. There's uncertainty, but we can model, model our way to the right answer. Um, there's, we've got to do a lot of heavy lifting on building out the market mechanisms to incentivize uh, forestation. We've got to incentivize uh, the development of sinks, and here's where the, the things sort of start to fit together. Um, in Prairie Pothole in North Dakota, um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture along with some NGOs set up a pilot project uh, that helps build out conservation and in turn helps build out sinks for greenhouse gases. That is being funded by... Uh, offsets that Chevy is buying. Um, So Chevy is paying for conservation in Prairie Pothole, North Dakota. And it's in part because they're starting to think about what does uh, CO2 mean for them? What does greenhouse gas intensity mean for them? What does climate risk mean for them? So there's a connectivity between all of these things. And that connectivity is something we have to be really deliberate about, especially in a world where Frankly, we're working with sort of second best climate tools. Um, In a world where we had first best climate tools, um, sort of economy-wide pricing, then maybe we wouldn't have to spend as much time thinking about this, because it would flow down. Um, But in a world where we're using second best tools, all of which have been incredibly effective in advancing the climate dialogue and moving us rapidly towards our goals, we've got to be really uh, spending a lot of time getting the data out there so people are filling in the gaps and being as efficient as they can. Super. A Couple more in the back there and then right here.
2: Hi, I'm Callie Webber. I'm an independent analyst on uh, climate and energy. Thank you to the Atlantic uh, Council and the panelists for giving um, such a comprehensive overview. Um, My question comes to uh, the concept of uh, transition and um, letting disclosure do the job. Um, there is another thought process out there that says it's not transition, it's um, transformation, and in order to get transformation given the possibility with a two degree scenario that you have to do more faster because you have a carbon bubble and you have uh, the concept of unburnable carbon how is, this, um, how is this program going to address that potential scenario? Well I think we we will recommend um, the use of scenario analysis and with at least a single baseline scenario um, so that we can have comparability uh, between companies uh, in a sector and across sectors. Um, but there are lots of scenarios possible, and um, we, w- we don't want to discourage companies from using others um, that might, might help enlighten um, our target audience, which again is investors, lenders, and uh, underwriters. and uh, um, investors. So, I, you know, scenario analysis is not the be-all and the end-all, um, for sure. There are, as, as we, we talked about, uh, different assumptions that can be made that will greatly change what your uh, output is. But getting people started on this path of thinking about these issues in those terms, we think is really in, uh, an important first step.
3: And look, I, th- I think one, one, one piece of this that's important is um, we're not passive actors in which scenario is going to pan out. Um, and one of the things that I think is really important to get out there, uh, our Council on Economic advisors uh, put out a report a couple of years ago that talks about uh, how much cost you incur by just delaying climate action. Now, we talk about it in the tens of billions and hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, but that tens of billions and hundreds of billions of dollars crosswalks to different segments of the economy, different regions of the country, and it has very clear consequences for people and companies. Um, and so whether we're taking a stepwise uh, change in the future or whether we're having uh, an ability to be smoother uh, in terms of going from point A to point B, it kind of depends on how aggressive people are willing to be Uh, in getting to business Um, and so you know it's easy to take a step back and say oh that's a hundred billion dollar delay and maybe we're okay with that but that hundred billion dollar delay is not going to fall on everybody equally Uh, and and it's and it's important to be really thoughtful of what those different scenarios mean and for whom. Great, right here and then we'll do the back row.
6: Hi, um, my name is Nancy Meyer. I do climate and energy research at IHS Market. Um, I, have done, I have a bit of a two-part question. The first part relates to materiality. Um, I know with previous SEC guidance, um, whether or not climate change presented a material risk to a business was one of the key issues as to how much information was disclosed. And, and Mary, from some of your earlier remarks, it seems that you're saying that almost every company is facing climate change risk and the materiality is less of a question. So I guess that's a clarification there. And then secondly, amidst all of the different disclosures that are currently out there, um, you have the uh, CDP, the companies report information to. um, And I've spoken to a lot of investors about climate risk and how they think about it. And there's two-part thinking that they are in some ways inundated with information about climate risk, and in other ways it's hard to kind of separate out what those key metrics are. And the SASB just came out with um, metrics uh, a week or two ago that looked at just four or five indicators for each industry. And so I guess my question is, is the FSB looking at the using a similar type framework where you're only looking at a few key metrics and if you're doing that then are you, how are you ensuring appropriate contextualization of that information on behalf of investors so that they're able to then use that information in a way that makes sense? So um, great questions.
2: Um, We have um, taken uh, an inventory really in the task force of all the different sets of metrics and standards that are out there. Mark Carney's speech refers to as many as 400 frameworks for um, for measuring climate impacts, and and clearly, that's in some ways allowed companies to say, you know what, it's too confusing. There's too much out there. There's not clarity around what we should be doing because everybody's got their own plan for what should be disclosed and for which stakeholders we're providing the information. So, one of a key part of our remit was really to build on what's been al- already been done but to bring sense and uh, a rational framework to all of that. So we've, we've very much taken notice of the work that's been done. We've, we've had lots of conversations with the key NGOs in this area, and we'll continue to do that right through uh, the completion of the report and the consultation period that will follow it. Um, so we're trying to deal with the we're inundated um, approach from the companies, and from the investor side, it's... This is not comparable because everybody's reporting under a different regime, so it's not really that valuable to me. I'd like it to be a lot simpler because then we could have some data vendors actually massage and manipulate the information and test it, and, and it would be much more valuable. So we're very much um, attuned to that. Um, on the materiality question, um, we tend to think about materiality as big and now. If it's not a big impact and it's not happening now, it's not material and we don't need to worry about it. And and climate really turns that on its head. And so much of our, many of our recommendations, some are not, re- to talk about the governance within your company of, of climate risk doesn't really require materiality. It requires you to talk about what's the role of your board? How do you integrate this into your strategic planning? Um, how do you uh, incorporate this into your risk management practices and procedures? And, and, and those are threshold things that are really important for investors to understand about a company and how it's approaching this, this very major risk. There are areas where climate um, is a much more material financial risk. There are those industries that are most likely to be impacted. And the task force has set out separate heightened uh, guidance for companies in complying with the recommendations for those businesses because of the likelihood of materiality um, in, in those, so in energy, and transportation, and agriculture, and in, in about a half a dozen of them.
1: Very back row on the, my left, here, right.
6: Hi, in the very beginning, it sounded like you were saying that the American government- Can you hold the mic a
1: little, just closer to your- uh, right
6: That the government, the taxpayers would be providing the uh, capital because these companies can't raise capital. They don't get enough interest in getting capital from um, the private sector. Uh, This doesn't sound very free market to me. It sounds kind of like crony capitalism. And I remember years ago, there were some companies that did this kind of stuff with taxpayer dollars, like Solyndra, and lost loads of money. And then all this idea of controlling where agriculture is and transportation, it sounds like the government is planning the economy instead of the free market what would your answer to that
1: be? And can you share your name and
3: affiliation with all uh, I don't have any
6: affiliation, my name is Mary Carrick.
3: Great, uh, I'll, I'll, I, obviously that question's for me. I wanna just go back um, <laughs> for a second on the, on the last question. I, I wanna affirm, I think, your general point that there's a lot of discussion in this space and what we need is for people to start coalescing around uh, a common set of tools. That's why I think the process that Mary's heading up is so important and as a, as a federal actor in this space, I think what we've been trying to do is send a demand signal that is persistent and pushing for greater precision so that, frankly, the data is more useful to us um, for planning purposes. So I just I wanted to reaffirm uh, that. And, and I'll go a little bit further and just say I thought the IHS analysis that came out recently was helpful. And that's exactly what we're trying to do is spur a conversation about what is the right governance here? Uh, what are the right ways of thinking about this challenge? Um, everybody recognizes we're going through a, tr- a challenging period, uh, f- uh, dealing with a bunch of new phenomena, um, and we need to be thoughtful about that. I think too, the uh, you know, what is the appropriate role of the federal government? Um, we got 20 countries um, and some of the leading uh, investors around the world together in Paris last year. Uh, talking about the importance of early straight stage and breakthrough research and development. This is the sort of stuff that yielded us GPS. It yielded us the keyboard that we all punch on every day. Um, it's the the type of research that's spurring breakthroughs in uh, uh, dealing with diseases like cancer, cancer and Alzheimer's. Um, we invest as a government, as the United States, um, in research that is underinvested in as uh, by private actors for a host of reasons, um, including, you know, this is the sort of research where a private firm can't capture all the benefits. Uh, it has huge spillover benefits for the society, um, and it advances public goods that may not be sufficiently valued in a world where externalities aren't uh, effectively priced in to the economy. So for a host of reasons, uh, this is business we like to do now there are good ways to do research and there are bad ways to do research. And I feel really good about the pioneering approaches this administration's helped support. Um, That includes investing in foundational things like our national labs, which uh, people have come to know for uh, the breakthroughs. They've had Argonne National Labs been on the front lines of uh, advancing the battery technology that now is used in the Chevy Volt and other other uh, vehicles around the world. Um, You've got uh, labs like uh, Lawrence Berkeley and Sandia that are doing work on uh, preventing cyber attacks to our grid. So there's a bunch of early stage clean energy R&D that's happening in that foundational uh, approach. You got new breakthrough approaches that are really designed to be disruptive of the technology paths we're on. Uh, Places like ARPA-E and DARPA, uh, DARPA's been doing it for decades. ARPA-E's been doing it for a decade, um, and we're seeing real transformation happen happening there. Um, and then there's then there's the translational work and the integrative uh, work that the research complex needs to be able to do. Um, and I, I'm not shy about saying you know, we got to do stuff in the lab, we got to do stuff um, in the universities, and we got to do stuff in the gr- on the ground. Uh, we got to prove this technology out. And there is a role for the federal government to, uh, to play to taking that first risk um, and getting out there and making sure these technologies work and then stepping away. Um, and the good news is you got folks like uh bill gates and uh meg whitman and mark zuckerberg and a host of others who are saying we're excited about putting our capital out there uh to pick up the baton and and run where it's appropriate for the private sector to step in so there's an appropriate role uh we've got to be uh skeptical about where that line is uh we got to train ourselves on that certainly um omb the B is budget, so we spend a lot of time thinking about where that line ends so we can get out of the game. Um, but there's a role, and we've got to do the catalytic work uh, to get us to, to pioneer the solutions we need. Great.
1: On the topic of continuing the conversation, you all aren't planning on issuing this guidance in December and closing up shop. Can you talk a little bit about how the how the the comment period or the sure. conversation continues so we from will, December? Sure.
2: Um, Um, present our report to the Financial Stability Board in uh, late November and issue it for a 60-day public consultation period in early December. Um, After that, we will um, obviously look at the comments, see if if anything needs to change, and provide a final report to the FSB in the spring, uh, whereupon it will land on the desks of the G20 leaders, and uh, they will... Hopefully, take it forward in some some fashion.
1: Terrific! That's great. Two questions right here. Wait for the mic. Uh,
0: <clears throat> excuse me. Hi there, um,
3: no. Ben Hulak. I'm a reporter with E&E News. Um, Governor Carney, in November, I think the
0: three uh, risks he identified were liability, physical, and transition. And we often hear a lot about physical. That's hurricanes. That's,
3: um, as you said, Chair Shapiro, easy to grasp. Um, I'm curious, though. How do you see these liability risks manifesting uh, on the government side? And then Chair Shapiro for you perhaps on the, on the private sector side of things, thanks.
2: Well, I think that private sector, you know, we, we've, we've come to think about the liability or the legal risks um, as really manifest from the um, physical risks. And they are just what you would think they would be. They're, um, Cities are underwater, there's enormous legal implications and, and liability implications to that, or damage um, uh, from, uh, from extreme weather events. And so they're out there, we know about them. Sometimes they're insurable risks, sometimes they aren't. Um, but we focus in our work on the task force much more on the transition risk, again, because of our linkage to the financial system in what we're doing and the potential for abrupt repricing of carbon-related assets, for example, to send a shutter through the financial system. And, and so th- our focus has much more been there.
1: That's great.
3: great. And I think from a federal uh, government perspective, it sort of depends on which lens you're looking at it from. So if it's procurement we're talking about, the reliability, the procurement, the uh, the stability of the vendor, things like that, uh, there you're focusing maybe more on the physical risk. Um, if it's on the other side where you're really trying to safeguard uh, the pensions of uh, millions of Americans, um, then you're going to be thinking about it from a broader uh, vantage point, and and there I imagine the disclosure's got to be a little bit uh, more uh, robust in in other vectors as well so it sort of depends on uh, what the what the mission is specifically um, but you know all of these things are are um, I think very important to get at least out into the market um, so that everyone's sighted uh, on what's going on
5: hi um, my Identical question stuff, really goes to the issues associated with infrastructure. Infrastructure is clearly very critical in terms of our ability to adapt to and manage through climate change. Um, there's been discussion here about SASB, uh, implicitly about FASB. What's missing is GASB. And what I'm interested in is you made a reference to um, focusing on HUD activities that were going to incorporate fortified building standards. What I'm really interested in is a pro- probably a, f- a broader follow through that would look to municipal bond ratings um, and that would particularly look to matching funds. And what is OMB considering, if anything, at this point, about um, addressing matching funds to combat what turned out to be a lot of conflicting procurement regulation components that are embedded that use historical, let's say, rainfall pattern data to set up procurements for Army Corps of Engineers as the basis for matching fund for local infrastructure. Um, Is there anything that you're looking at in that context? And then uh, from a a disclosure perspective, has or will the disclosure count um, uh, group look at issues associated with municipal bonds?
1: And what's your affiliation, if you can share with us? I'm
5: sorry, my name is Lindine Patton. I have, um, I work with a small law firm called Earth and Water Group, but I used to be the chief climate product officer for Zurich Insurance Group for about 20 years.
2: Well, I can quickly answer. We haven't really focused on the municipal bond market. Um, and of course, they're, as, you, as you well know, um, very difficult um, for the SEC to um, dictate any kind of disclosure standards in that market either.
3: The, whether it's the community development block grant, which I referenced, um, and that works in partnership with municipalities, um, or it's work at the Army Corps, I think we're, the state of the art is, is, is not settled yet, uh, and I think there's more, there's obviously more work to be done. Um, y- you make a good point on uh, sort of conflicting values, and I think it's important to recognize uh, different communities are going to approach this in different ways. They're going to prioritize certain things more than others. Um, but as a federal government, I think one of the baseline things we can do to communities, for communities as they as they start to uh, head down this path is, one, make sure they are not wanting of uh, data and modeling tools. So we've got uh, NOAA and USGS and others uh, who are now, I think, in a way that wasn't true a few years ago, really actively providing information in a way that's usable for uh, municipal, state, local actors. Uh, The second is to make sure they're not wanting of capacity to be able to develop uh, the policy changes they have decided they want. Um, And then the third is to not be creating the sort of uh, wrong incentives uh, as people are doing this planning. So let's not reward people for um Failing to take this stuff into account, um, and that's I think the point I was trying to make earlier about uh, infrastructure um, siting and, and other decisions you know there are a lot of factors that go into what gets built and where um, and in, in a lot of cases that's a locally driven process, but what we shouldn't be doing as a federal government is setting up incentives to do it uh, in the wrong place or build it uh, where it's not needed and that's um, I think a process that we're, um, parts of it we're early days on, parts of it we're maybe further down the tracks. Um, but it's, I think, a big piece of business for um, the next administration to take on. we got time for a few more. This gentleman right here.
7: Uh, Jean-Francois Watin, who is a French uh, international economy think tank, CPII. Uh, and the work of the task force, I think is a great addition to uh, Paris, Kigali, Montreal, and so on, because it's a way to leverage financial markets uh, in favor of climate change. But then I looked very quickly, uh, before coming in at Dan Jurgen's paper, it seems to me he's a bit of a David's advocate in the, on that issue, because essentially he says, well, that's not the job of central bankers to talk about climate change. Uh, it seems to me he implies that there is an ideological uh, view Uh, in uh, Mark Carney's uh, uh, speech. And then he makes a demonstration uh, in terms of uh, risk on financial markets. Look, the price of oil fell way down. 82 companies went bankrupt, but there was no risk to the financial system. So how do you answer to what I read as being critics of the process by uh, Dan in his paper?
2: Well, I think, look, if financial, if uh, climate change is a financial stability threat, then it is very much the business of central bankers to be worried about it. I mean, we can all recall um, the criticism of regulators and central bankers for not um, foreseeing the, the financial stability threats that were building in the uh, our many economies uh, in the 2000s, so leading uh, up to 2008, 2009. So. Um, You know, if central bankers believe that this is a financial stability threat because of the potential for repercussions within the financial industry from an abrupt repricing of carbon-related assets, then that is their purview. And I think it's completely appropriate for us to be looking at these issues. That aside, though, it's still incredibly important. Whether there's a financial stability issue or not, we could have a legitimate argument about that probably. Investors are demanding this information. They're in va- large institutional investors accounting for trillions of, of do- dollars of assets under management need this information, they believe, to make rational decisions about where to invest uh, pensioners' money, um, among, among all the other uh, types of investors out there. And um, we ought to be, the financial markets ought to be in a position to give them that information. You know, I've said for my entire professional life, Transparency is the lifeblood of markets. Markets are the most powerful tools on earth, and if we can supply the markets with the information they need to understand what these risks are, and then I can make a decision, these risks aren't real, or these aren't risks I'm worried about, or uh, you know, I'll pick this company over that company, even though that company does a better job of mitigating or managing those risks because I believe in this company. Those are my free will decisions to make, but I've got to have the information to make those choices, and, and that's, that's really what this is all about.
1: It's probably an important disclosure, because sometimes these issues can take on a life of their own, and you know the, the most polarizing issue defines the debate, um, and then you lose some of it. So one issue is, you know is, is disclosure good, what kind of disclosure, and there'll be some specificity on that.
2: Exactly, and so for me, uh, as a lifelong capital markets regulator and very much a newcomer to the space of, of climate change, I'm, I always learn a ton when I get to sit next to Ali because he knows so much and I know so little. Um, but as somebody who believes deeply in, in transparency and in markets, this disclosure, if people d- determine that they need it, if the reasonable investor believes that they need to understand these risks that may have a material impact on the operations or the finances of this company, then they should have that information.
1: What, one question that's come up, and it was it's related to the unburnable carbon, question that we got before is really time horizon which is what time horizon um, are you worried about and I think uh, the the IHS paper said the SEC rules only let companies value their assets at least 70% of their assets on what they call 1p reserves reserves you are going to use in the 10-15 years it's a huge discount on the outlying on the outlying assets so I guess the question is if um, if you worry about unburnable carbon then it may be true that those resources owned by the company may not have much have much value but over the the near term time horizon the SEC rules and essentially uh, regulate how companies are permitted to value that so what sort of time horizon or are there multiple time horizons that you think this disclosure will
2: so again without look at? being too specific um, because our, our report's not completed yet we do talk in terms of short medium and long term uh, in our recommendations and and we recognize that there's a, a continuum of of disclosure that's really necessary
3: here. Super, and I, just on time horizon, I would just say, you know, there's there's time horizon and there are different planes. There's the uh, accounting valuation, and then there's the political economy uh, implications of certain things that happen in the market. And we've seen um, markets and the value of companies and the cost of capital for companies fluctuate in a way that's not. Uh, dollar for dollar relative to the way accounting valuation works. So I think that's an important thing for people to keep in mind. Good
1: point. Great. Well, if there are no more urgent questions, then um, I want to thank you for really giving us a, a tutorial and a primer on what this effort is all about. It's something that the Global Energy Center will continue to follow. Both through December, perhaps you can come back after the the uh, things the okay, Financial yeah. Stability Board is briefed and talk about those recommendations. And um, if you all please join me in thanking our panelists for coming today.